Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. This is our regular conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. Um, we've got two guests in Washington, D.C., along with my sister, Debbie Shore. Deb, it's good to be doing a podcast again. We've missed a couple with each other. I know, and I'm here with one of my favorite chefs, so I'm happy. Yeah, well, it's our neighborhood chef. It's exactly. A, right, and we're at, we're at Anne's, um, used to be Cashins, which... Um, Debbie and I loved, and I think, Debbie, when your daughter was born, Sophie, that was the first place we took her in a little bucket car seat when she was maybe nine (laughs) days old. And and many times after, but uh, that was special. Many times. Uh, And now Johnny's Half Shell uh, and a Taqueria, right? And a Taqueria, that's right. Um, Yeah, it's very cool to have uh, Johnny's Half Shell where Cashins used to be. We love that. Um, Well, we're going to talk about how all this came to pass. Um, And... We've also got an expert on restaurants. We talk about restaurants constantly on this podcast, but we've never had the depth of historical expertise that we've got in Paul Friedman, a professor of medieval history at Yale, uh, and more notably to us at Add Passion and Stir, the author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America. Paul's with us in our New York studio. Paul, welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Really glad to, to have you. And- Let's start um, with you. You've got such a um, kind of distinguished pedigree in terms of becoming a chef, like the level of training that you had. I think you began in San Francisco, but tell us a little bit about uh, the path because you um, you cooked at some extraordinary places and still do. Uh, <laughs> but those were, I'm sure, you know, influential and formative in your your career. Yes, I did start in San Francisco because I dropped out of my PhD program, unlike Paul. Um, and I came I worked, close, I assure uh, you. <laughs> did you? Yeah. You know, we were out there at exactly the same I know, time. I know, I awesome. know. Isn't that funny? Because I, I saw that you rece- you got your PhD in 78. I left uh, my program in 78, but I was two years in, so we were very, very close. And I started uh, basically with zero experience, except for a couple of like high school jobs. I used to cook in in the summers in high school in Mississippi. I've because I've always loved food and I've always been interested in it. Well, that's uh, what I wanted to. I yeah. wanted to start there. Like, where did that interest begin? Do Do you recall like what the spark was? I loved to eat, and I was that child who, you know, would come home from school and immediately start trying to find out what was for dinner. And uh, I wasn't interested in cooking the dinner at that point, but I sure was interested in eating it. I don't know. My passion came with just the joy of eating. And Did your parents cook? My Yes. Okay. My parents cooked. My grandparents cooked. Uh, and in fact, you know, at the time that I grew up in Mississippi, there really weren't restaurants. I mean, I think back... Where did we eat out? Well, you know, there just wasn't much eating out done at that time. So, yeah, cooking in the home was a big deal. Going to my friend's home where their parents were cooking was a very nice sort of like, oh, this is how they do it. You know, this is what they eat. But in fact, in Mississippi, because it is such a a regional, you know, the Deep South was such a regional sort of identity, we were all pretty much eating the same things. You know, I remember also just getting really excited for summertime because that's when all the, like, really my favorite produce was available. And so, you know, all the cow peas, and there were so many uh, different varieties, uh, everything from crowder peas to lady peas 
you know, the summer squashes, the melons and the tomatoes and the corn. Those are the things that, you know, I sort of lived for. And uh, those were the great days when we weren't, I wasn't in school. Uh, Those were the things that were sort of around the house and that we could cook for dinner. But in terms of actually starting to prepare food, I did it in high school uh, as a summer job because I was interested in it. I had a friend who owned a motel. He wanted me to work at the front desk like a proper young lady. And I did that for about two weeks. And I was like, you know what? Can I just work in the kitchen? (laughs) And he said, sure. So I ended up in the kitchen of the Ramada Inn next to the Coliseum in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, working with what was pretty much a predominantly, I would say total, African-American staff. And it was such a great learning experience because so many of them just cooked by feel. You know, it was my first exposure to watching people just sort of do that. No recipes, uh, you know, make the biscuits, throw 25 pounds, but of course they didn't measure it, uh, to throw a big mass of flour on the table, knead in the shortening, add the buttermilk, boom. It's like, and the biscuits were always perfect. It was by by touch and my feel. It was completely by touch and my feel. So, yeah, that's that's when I really got started. And then San Francisco? You know, I don't think I was a good Ph.D. candidate because the degree to which you're pushed into specializing was something I didn't like. I'm just a generalist. So I was spending all my time cooking, inviting people over to dinner, cooking. I mean, by this time, especially in San Francisco at that time, there was a real uh, new sort of burgeoning interest in food. And uh, I was so caught up in that. And not that I was eating out a lot, but I just wanted to be cooking. This was in, what were, what were the years? So that you were 76 in? to 78. And what were I you studying be- before you dropped out? Uh, English you... literature. And Paul, do you cook as well as you write about food? I do. I'm not uh, all that skilled, but I have a lot of practice. And I know I'm dedicated because when we had our kitchen remodeled and it was out of commission for three weeks, I still cooked in the basement. So I must be serious (laughs) to that extent. And tell us, uh, writing a book uh, like 10 Restaurants That Changed America, is that as much fun as it sounds like it would be? Yes, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I know know it was hard work too, right? Um, Well, you know, my day job is medieval history and that is what I still have students Um, teach classes and do research in. The American food side was kind of like a hobby that escaped my control. And writing the restaurant's book, I sort of began with the idea and wanted to see how far I could get. And yes, it was fun because each restaurant has a different kind of history, a different set of sources. And unlike medieval history, you can talk to actual living people who have experiences that you can write about. And where did the idea come from? It's sort of a long story. It was partly I worked on a book about spices in the Middle Ages as prized consumer items and as the motive force for all sorts of Things like Columbus's voyage or the European colonization of both Asia and the New World. And that really showed me how important food is in history, not just food that you need to survive, but luxury foods, frivolous foods, things like sugar or spices. 
Um, and at the New York Public Library, where I had a fellowship working on this now about 15 years ago, they have an incredible collection of menus, about 40,000 menus, and they had a display of them. And I just fell in love with the menu as a document, both as information about what people ate in the past, and it was obvious that people in the United States had eaten completely different food uh, in the 19th century than now, and then as rhetorical documents, you know, the kind of menu that's minimalist and, you know, doesn't tell you anything, it just says sea bass, or the over-elaborate menu that tells you where every nectarine came from or, you know, every um, item of meat, what farm it's from. Paul, I, before we go too much further, I was going to ask you to just tell us the names of the 10 restaurants that you chose. I know, I'm dying to and hear I'd, this. <laughs> and I'd love to get Annie's take on them. I don't want to pick a fight between the two of you, but it must have been hard to get it down to 10, and I'm sure you had to make some ch tough choices. But um, just tell our listeners what the, maybe what the, the names of the 10 and where they're located. Uh, and then I'd love to have a little bit of a conversation about how you made that selection and what else could have been on there from either of your perspectives. Sure. The first was Delmonico's, which is really the first restaurant in the United States, if by restaurant you mean a place that people go to for more than just sustenance. Uh, that's in New York, and it was created in the 1830s. It still exists, although it had a kind of gap during Prohibition in the 1920s. Antoine's in New Orleans is almost as old. It was founded in 1840, and it is the oldest restaurant run by the same family. And it's there to represent regional cuisine, Louisiana and New Orleans having probably the most durable cuisine among American regional styles. The third is Schraft's, it's a small chain of gracious but not very expensive restaurants. And when it was founded in 1900, it appealed to women deliberately. Howard Johnson's, which was the largest chain of restaurants in the United States in the 1960s. It had a 1,000 branches and served more people than any institution except the U.S. Army. It was um, the pioneer of roadside restaurants, pioneer of franchising, and very much in the category of nice food that people old enough to have dined there are very nostalgic about. Their fried clams were particularly famous. Then an Italian restaurant. You can't write about American cuisine without Italian food. I chose Mama Leone's, which was a restaurant in New York. Mama Leone's used to serve something on the order of 3,000 people a day. The Chinese restaurant uh, that I chose was called The Mandarin. It was in San Francisco from 1961 uh, into the 1990s. It was one of the first to uh, break with the Cantonese tradition. It was fairly elegant and its founder, Cecilia Chang, is a legendary chef, very much active, approaching her 100th birthday, which is in September. Then Sylvia's, a famous African-American restaurant in Harlem. It reflects not only the uh, history of African-American cuisine, but the links between the South and the North. Uh, Sylvia Woods came from Hemingway, South Carolina, maintained links with the her home all during that time. And so the story of this restaurant is in part the story of the great migration of African-Americans 
to the north that began around uh, 100 years ago. Then Le Pavillon, which was uh, an extremely elegant French restaurant, also in New York, that represented high-end cuisine uh, from the 1940s to the 1970s. Uh, The Four Seasons, which just closed uh, a couple months ago, was an elegant non-French restaurant. As its name implies, it paid attention to the seasons, which in 1959 was a revolutionary idea. And it also was the first place that the term power lunch was applied. And then finally, the last one is Chez Panisse. Uh, Chez Panisse probably requires the least explanation of any of these. In Berkeley, California, Alice Waters' creation in 1971, and uh, arguably the most influential restaurant of the last 50 years. Uh, Annie, give us your take on these. I mean, I had Delmonico's in mind because I also was thinking about, I wonder what his 10 restaurants are. And the first restaurant that popped into my mind was Delmonico's, not because I've ever eaten there, obviously, but because it's appeared in so many of the texts, uh, American literature texts that I've read uh, through the years. Antoine's I used to go to as a little girl. And I went there mm, probably about 15 years ago. I still do love it, and I still think it's incredibly important. And, And I thought your... Uh, adjective about Louisiana and Cajun Creole cooking as the most durable of our regional cuisines was was interesting. I think that's giving it a little bit of short shrift, but of course I'm partial. I, I would say that it's the most uh, well-defined and in some ways uh, the most comp- complex because it, has, it stems from so many di- divergent influences coming together in that part of of the country. I'm wondering, um, both Anne and Paul, what, what you think of the, um, on the hospitality, you know, kind of lens. Because I was also thinking about maybe Antoine's, which I haven't been to in years, but certainly Chez Panisse, in addition to bringing a different cuisine, a new cuisine, um, a farm-to-table cuisine, there was also, I think, a sense of hospitality there, probably, and maybe in some of the others, but was that part of your criteria, Paul? Very much so, actually, although I wasn't always aware of it until later. So certainly places like uh, Sylvia's were centered around the charisma of the owner who was always there and who and the family a kind and her family yeah exactly but this is also true of Cecilia Chang who always complains about restaurants that I've been to with her that they're not paying enough attention or that the owners have delegated the uh, greeting of customers to someone else the hospitality aspect varies greatly so Schrafts, for example, deliberately hired Irish waitresses because they thought that they were the best at sort of um, dealing with possibly irritable or um, flattering customers. Mama Leone's offered a spectacle. The waiters uh, could carry the first course, which was an antipasto that consisted of 12 different dishes. You know, one great um, sort of I don't know, in my mind, uh, growing up, one sort of indication of a great uh, waiter was the ability not to write down the order, no matter how large the party. Your, your restaurant, uh, Cashin's, mm-hmm. that had a brief 
departure and came back yeah. to our neighborhood, thankfully. Uh, one of the things I've noticed about it, uh, and anybody who's eaten there over the years knows this, but your your staff, for the most part, has been kind of consistently with you and there. And I think about this unbelievable growth of restaurants in Washington, just like so many restaurants. You don't, need, I don't even know how they're going to all survive. But I guess, how do you, other than good food, which obviously is a criteria for a successful restaurant, and hospitality, which I think both of those things are, you know, in abundance now in Washington. How do you think about uh, success and survival in this really crowded market? Is it the consistency? Um, I do think it is consistency in the end. Uh, And I've only just recently come to that conclusion because, you know, this incredible sort of uh, growth in sort of the numbers of restaurants, the numbers of very good restaurants, and uh, the the fierceness of the competition to stay in business is relatively new. And uh, it's taken me a while to figure out, and I do think it's having Johnny's in the old cash and space, is that uh, slow and steady can still win the race. And that's great news for somebody like me who's been doing this for so many years uh, and isn't going to open a sort of, uh, you know, hot new concept uh, restaurant uh, anytime soon. So, yeah, I think consistency and accessibility, if you know, I, I, I believe that it's not not so I, I don't think price point, but I think accessibility. I mean, I find that people of all generations can enjoy what we do at Johnny's Half Shell. Yeah. Well, and tell, you see that too. about the experience that you're, uh, how would you describe the experience you want your guests to have? Debbie and I come and have dinner there and we walk out and we turn to each other and what do you want us to be saying? I would like you to be saying, oh, I just love going to that place. It, you know, it's, you know, the food is always great. The service is very professional and Johnny is a blast. Johnny, a <laughs> Johnny blast. being yeah. my partner. It's it's <laughs> nice to see him there. He's and, the you face know, of the place. And, and, and his energy is real. <laughs> it right? is it's not fabric. It's real. And when he sees you and knows you, which he knows everybody in the place, it, it does make a difference. And actually, you don't see that so much anymore in Washington. I think that's one of the unique features. Of and I think Johnny's another right thing now. you don't see in Washington right now is customers knowing each other. Because a lot of the restaurants that are hot have, you know, sort of everyone's going to try them. It's not a room full of people who have sort of lived next door to each other or have seen each other in this in this spot before and become friends, particularly at our bar, which is a very convivial place. It's true. You walk in, you see people from the neighborhood and that just makes you want to go back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it it really does. I mean, and I always feel like as good as the food is in a place and there's a lot of good food in Washington. As good as it is, I want to have a certain feeling, mm-hmm. and that feeling is going to override, you know, a- anything else. And actually, getting back to Billy's question, what do you see as in key to survival in this environment? That may be something to think about—not just consistency, but sort of creating a community that between members of your clientele. Not just you as the as the owner and the clientele, but sort of creating a sense of camaraderie in within the dining room. It's not easy to do, but I think we may be fortunate to have it, and I think it may be part of our key. And as a customer, it sure feels great when you have that experience, right? Other people you know. And Annie's been very involved with Share Strength from almost the beginning, and we started in 1984. And one of the things I'd love you both to comment on, and I don't know if you have a perspective on this, 
Paul, uh, but Share Strength was started just as chefs were becoming more kind of public celebrities um, and starting to have their TV shows and now social media. But um, but the premise for our work has been that chefs could make a difference in the community and that restaurants could make a difference in the community by getting involved in a wide variety of different uh, community causes, ours being uh, hunger and, and, and childhood hunger. Yeah, it's, it's funny because uh, I just did... Uh an event last week uh, where it was all women chefs and it, the uh, cause, the fund, the recipients of the fundraisers were all organizations that are assisting uh, immigrant families at the border. That question came up and I was thinking uh, about, you know, how often does this happen? How involved are restaurants in this, in politics and this type of thing and issues? And I was thinking back to our time together with Share Our Strength and, and realizing that, sadly, I think uh, it's a little bit less easy for restaurants to, to sort of be uh, responsible and to sort of fulfill that responsibility if they feel it because of the competitive nature of this environment. I mean, if you guys remember, it was like we were one big family back then. And... Uh, and that was true of chefs and restaurateurs as well. As as the pool has grown so large, I think it's harder and harder for people to find the time and the staff uh, to support their efforts in that regard. Uh, and that's a problem. And, you know, I was thinking that's a problem. Well, it, I think it's hard to say because there are more chefs and restaurants, so we still have a healthy, uh, you know, kind of cohort of chefs and restaurants participating in our work. But uh, I, I think in that's relative true. terms, it's probably smaller than it once was proportionally. But, well, but I've seen a change in the depth of their participation. So an event, sure, but getting more involved in you know their community, recruiting others, taking a leadership role, I think has become harder, to your point. I really do. To your point, Billy, there there are so many chefs that are coming up. You know, I always think of the industry uh, as as it relates to Share Strength as that group of chefs that you're one of. Um, you know, when we started the organization, and they were kind of you know on their way up in their career, and then they kind of reached a certain level, and they're still there, and they're still doing great. But then there are all these other chefs coming up under them. But I I think it is harder now. Well, the one thing that's operating in favor of greater chef involvement is the rapid and perhaps overdue change in the definition of celebrity chefs. So for most of the last 20 years, a celebrity chef was male, kind of a bad boy, uh, very, very dynamic, let's say, and in your face and maybe interested in society, but also uh, interested primarily in a certain kind of projection of personality, the social changes that have taken place, particularly the Me Too movement and the has changed what a chef with a reputation is supposed to do. Well, one, I will say, though, that one thing that I've also seen change uh, during our time at Share Strength is we used to work with restaurants and chefs really just to raise funds. And then they discovered that they had a voice. And part of that came with a celebrity that you mentioned, Paul. And it really gave them a different way to contribute. Um, they don't all, you know, raise money for share strength, but they come to Washington. They, um, you know, learn about the issues. They go up to Capitol Hill. They lobby their uh, policymakers about school breakfast and summer meals and issues that really matter to them. And that is relatively new, at least for us, I'd say in the last, you know, five to seven years. So I think there's an additional 
value that they've discovered that we've also discovered around leveraging their voice, which didn't exist when we started. Yeah, I, I'd also like to add uh, that, you know, fundraisers are just one way. And uh, you're talking about another way, uh, which is also, I think, somewhat time consuming and takes you outside the four walls of your restaurant. I think for somebody like me who really enjoys being in my kitchen and cooking, I think about what I can do within the four walls, and a lot of that has to do with what you brought up, Paul, sort of issues of sustainability going forward. I think it will have a lot to do with uh, the connections between how we eat, how we, uh, what we demand in terms of how our food is grown, and climate change. I think those connections are going to become more and more important. So I feel like Making the right decisions, purchasing the food that I should be purchasing, encouraging my customers to understand that food, where it comes from, why it's important that I buy it there, why it's important that maybe uh, they pay slightly more for that. Uh, they pay a little bit of a premium for that. I mean, these are things that I do just in the day-to-day course of, of being a chef, and they're really important to me, and I'm very consistent uh, about that. Paul, uh, can you give us a little preview of the next book in terms of uh, American cuisine and how it got this way? Um, is there any particular way that you define it yet that you can share with us or give us the headline news version? Well, like the 10 Restaurants book, uh, the background question is what is American cuisine uh, and is there such a thing? And is there such a thing? Because even though uh, – there may be some disparity between what Italian restaurants in the United States serve and what restaurants in Italy serve. If you see the entrance to an Italian restaurant, you have a pretty good idea of what you're going to get there. Whereas if a, a restaurant is defined as American, and you see this in guidebooks, for example, let's say new American or American traditional or regional. So what, what does American mean? is the the issue. So this book is not about restaurants as much as about cooking and how people have changed since the mid-19th century, really since the Civil War. If you start then, there are all sorts of regional cuisines and picking up from what Anne said before, by durable, uh, I meant um, uh, with reference to Louisiana and Creole and Cajun food, that it has resisted the tide of homogenization, standardization, industrial food. And that, that's the main trend in American history, certainly for the 20th century, the spread of the same brands, the same kinds of recipes, so that you would not know if you were in a restaurant what part of the country you were in. You would not know if you were in a supermarket where you were certainly on an off-ramp with a lot of fast food options. You'd have absolutely no idea. So the book deals with regionalism, the eclipse of regionalism, the rise of standardization, and why people liked that. You know, it's not as if Europe didn't have technology and they invented things like pasteurization or bullion cubes, but they preserved a greater sense of the orientation to quality, particularly in primary products like, say, bread or sausages. This starts to change in 1970 in the, the era in which uh, uh, Anne and I were in graduate school and where the idea that quality, seasonality, local uh, farms, 
started to matter. So the book is partly about uh, about that transition and and how far or not far we've gone since the in the past fifty years. So uh, places like Columbus, Ohio, or the city that I know very well uh, from uh, from teaching there, um, uh, Nashville which during the 70s and 80s had a lot of money uh, and most of the 90s as well, a lot of money, a lot of fancy restaurants and a lot of sort of food of um, hard to identify because based on concepts that were imported from elsewhere. And now, of course, it's a, a gastronomic destination. Paul, the the re- like the cities that you just mentioned, um, Nashville and Columbus and Minneapolis and others, do they have as strong uh, or any kind of the immigrant um, ethnic foods that we have? You know, I mean, I'm sure they have a few, but you know, I feel like Washington and New York is just so um, profound in interesting foods from you know regions of Russia and regions of Asia. You know, Laotian food and Uyghur food, which which Uyghur, yeah, Uyghur food. Yeah. All these things are so fun here in Washington, and and is that sort of limited to the big cities, or do you see that everywhere By else? no means. I think um, it varies. So Minneapolis has a very large Somali and Ethiopian population. I think this has to do with uh, the relocation of people uh, by the government uh, when the government cared uh, a, a little more than it does now about where people who have immigrated end up. Uh, and uh, because it's a university town as well as a manufacturing center and state capital, university towns like Lawrence, Kansas uh, or Bloomington, Indiana will have a tremendous uh, variety of uh, international restaurants, not necessarily because of immigration of large numbers of people but because of what customers want. And then, uh, of course – the fact that there are 40,000 Chinese restaurants in the United States and the majority of them are in, uh, you know, not San Francisco or New York or Washington uh, is, um, uh, is pretty significant. I had one of my most interesting restaurant experiences ever yesterday. Um, and we have to wrap up soon, so I'll just I'll make it brief. But I uh, was in Los Angeles with a chef named Ted Sisma, who's been involved with Share of Strength, and he's the corporate chef at SpaceX, at Elon Musk's rocket factory. And um, one of the things that they realized when they opened up um, SpaceX was that to keep the best people there and to keep them happy and to keep them healthy, they had to have great food. They couldn't have a corporate cafeteria. They had to have real food and they had to have uh, you know, sustainable produce and grass-fed beef and line-cut fish. Um, when Ted started there, there were 300 employees. Now there's 7,000. But he was saying that, you know, and they're right near LAX airport, and there's nowhere to eat around there except a, uh, you know, a Carl's or an IHOP or something like that. And he was saying to have a $500,000 engineer uh, decide to have dinner there instead of going home for dinner, from which he would not come back, but to have his dinner there and stay and work till 8 or 9 o'clock. He said the return on investment, you know, the, the return on investment that he's delivering is immediate. And so they're thinking of, and, and they're literally, they're building the capsule, what we always think of as, you know, kind of like the, you know, the capsule that sits on top of the rocket. They call it the dragon capsule. Uh, they're building it about just 10 feet away from where people are dining. It's all one big 
open space. But the employees are so committed and so loyal, and they're thinking on one hand about rocket fuel, and and then Ted is thinking about food as fuel that really makes this company go. And um, you, you got to somehow you got to work your way in there, uh, Paul, to, to check it out because uh, Elon Musk had just like he has a different vision of so many things. He had a different vision of what the, the role that food could play uh, in their race to colonize Mars, which is their number one mission. Everything else is kind of a means to an end. So uh, for me, it was a very different restaurant experience than any that that I think we've had so far. As I said before, Food is both a necessity and a pleasure. Are you looking at issues uh, like uh, genetically modified foods and sort of the technological sort of uh, treatment of food and uh, how the commodity food system has sort of adapted or not uh, to ideas of sustainability? Just at the end. So there's a final sort of epilogue that is uh, the year 2020 and uh, beyond. Obviously, this is a relatively new issue. Um, I deal a lot with technology and with American infatuation with technology and then disillusionment with it. And this is uh, um, what you mentioned has both sides of it. Uh, I also, um, it occurred to me, I have some quotes from the Jackson, excerpts from the Jackson Symphony League uh, community cookbook. I don't know if you know this, uh, from the 1970s with an introduction by Eudora Welty. Um, A fascinating document. American cuisine and how it got this way. And Anne, tell us what's next for you. I think you mentioned that you've got a new taqueria opening up here. Uh, yes, I do. It's close, uh, but uh, it probably won't be opening until later in the fall, I would say. Uh, it'll be in Mount Pleasant, which is where I live. So it's a stone's throw from where Johnny's Half Shell is now located. On the main drag is, there? Yeah, on Mount, Mount Pleasant, Pleasant Street. Street. Yeah. yeah. What's it going to be called? It's going to be a Taqueria Nacional. So yeah. it will be a mini version of what we do uh, on T Street. It's a very, very small space, but I think it will be uh, refreshing for the neighborhood to uh, have something that's quick service and quality uh, with, uh, you know. That'll do super well there, I, I think. hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Sounds great. Deb, do you want to ask our last stump yes. the guest question? Yeah, stump the guest oh. question. So for both of you, um, if you had to pick a little place either in your city or somewhere else that is, you know, kind of off the beaten track or just your favorite go-to restaurant that is not your own, um, (laughs) where would it be? And you first. I mean, it's funny. Mount Pleasant Street is changing a lot. There is a – we got a really great little market called Each Peach, and they've opened a cafe next door called uh, Pear Plum Cafe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Eat peach. <laughs> and it's peach very and much plum. on the model of it and it, uh, the sort of the millennial sort of restaurant, sort of snack coffee shop. But uh, I had some, you know, crostini with uh, liver pate that they prepared. It was just, it, they were, it's great, you know? I, I'm going to give a plug for a restaurant that I went to yesterday that was so amazing for lunch. Um, Hando Mado. Have you heard about it? On 14th Street, handmade Japanese hand rolls. But the best thing on the menu was this um, half a avocado, which was grilled or roasted, I'm not sure which, with ponzu sauce and shrimp. And it, it was incredible. What's yours, Paul? You're up, Paul. One is called Five Star Village or just Village Cafe. Uh, in Brooklyn, in the um, 
on Coney Island Avenue, Midwood neighborhood, it serves Azerbaijani food, uh, which is sort of like um, between Turkish and uh, maybe a little bit of uh, Central Asian. It's tremendous and definitely off the beaten track as far as Manhattanites cool. are concerned. Uh, another one is in Manhattan, and it's called La Vie en Sichuan. The idea of a Chinese restaurant with a French name appeals to me. Uh, uh, it's not unknown by any means. It's fairly crowded. Uh, it's in Midtown South near the Empire State Building. Uh, it has Sichuanese food, and it's like um, – uh, it's it's so much fresher and more vivid than what we've become used to by way of uh, uh, Chinese restaurants. Wow. Those are great tips. Those are great. Thank you both so much for being part of this conversation. And Cashin, we're excited about the second taqueria that's coming. And uh, we can almost always find you at Johnny's Half Shelf, right? <laughs> that's where you're cooking. That's right. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, this was fun. Thanks for being on. And Paul Friedman, uh, thanks for 10 Restaurants That Changed America. It's uh, just a fascinating history. And to hear you talk about it, you you uh, are able to bring it alive even more than the book does. And the book does a pretty great job of that on its own. So thanks so much for being with us, Paul. Thank you. It's a privilege to be part of this conversation. Uh, and thanks to my sister Debbie Shore on behalf of both of us and the entire team at Share Our Strength and the team here at District Productive. Peter Ogborn, our producer today. Uh, Kelly Griffin, who helps with all of our uh, podcast activities. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull.